Here's where we are. Jefferson said, if you expect to be a nation ignorant and free, you expect what never has been and never can be in the history of the world. I think we are testing that proposition. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for Dead Presidents and Living Statues, where we explore our past, our present, and our promise. We're thrilled to present this program in partnership with Florida Humanities as part of the Created Equal and Breathing Free podcast series. I am so excited to share this discussion with you because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, I think you're going to hear things that you will agree with and also things that help stretch your understanding of your fellow Americans. And guess what? We have presidential scholar Clay Jenkinson, host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, back with us for this program. Clay has portrayed Jefferson in 49 states and has performed before Supreme Court justices, presidents, state legislatures, and countless public, corporate, and student audiences. And you might remember him from two episodes ago, A Conversation with Thomas Jefferson, one of my absolute favorite podcast episodes ever. Well, since we first held that program, the legacy of Thomas Jefferson has become a hot topic. And so we invited Clay back for this Dead Presidents and Living Statues program to continue the discussion and to explore Jefferson's hypocrisy and where we are today in relation to our founding ideals. So back to facilitate another riveting discussion with Clay Jenkinson is Steve Vancor, president of Vancor Jones Communications. And also joining the discussion is a God Squad regular, Pastor Derek McGee of Bible-Based Church, and also of Johnson & Blanton. Before we let Steve, Clay, and Derek take it away, check this out, you guys. We think so much of the wisdom that Clay shares with us, particularly at this moment in history when we're having trouble understanding our fellow Americans. So we invited Clay back again just the other day for a little Village Square behind the scenes moment. Basically a short bonus episode that will be aired exclusively right here on Village Squarecast later this season. It was such an insightful discussion from a man who has portrayed Jefferson for about 30 years and who has struggled deeply with his own feelings about whether he should continue to do that or not. Here's a little taste. I started working on Jefferson about 30 years ago, and at that time, he was riding high as without question the most extraordinary of the founding fathers, our true Renaissance man, almost America's da Vinci. And at that time, the fact that he owned slaves was regarded as sort of an asterisk, um, not particularly important in understanding him. And, uh, and he was almost given a pass as if he were a reluctant slaveholder. And if he could have snapped his fingers, 
he would have gotten out from under this horrible institution. But since then, in the last 30 years, and particularly in the last 15, uh, race has caught up with Mr. Jefferson. Trust me, you guys, Clay's explanation that follows is really incredible. So make sure you're subscribed to Village Squarecast so you'll see that bonus episode when it comes out. All right, now let's turn to Dead Presidents and Living Statues with Clay Jenkinson, Derek McGee, and facilitated by Steve Vancor. Take it away, Steve. So while, they, while these guys are getting dressed, if you think you know something, I want you to consider this. If you, you know, you, your area of expertise, you're an attorney, you're a builder like Lori or uh, Feeding Florida like Robin, you know your subject area really well. Think about this. I, I heard an interview with uh, Clay one time, and this person asked him, well, how many books are there on Thomas Jefferson? And Clay said, 700, I own, he said, 700 or 800 of those books. I said, well, you read them all? He goes, well, I've read them all, but I've only, I have emphasis on the word only, I've only read like 70 of them. That means I've only read notes in the margins, dog ears. So as Clay talks tonight, we're going to try to compress a lot of what he knows and give a little context to what you know, to the subjects that we're, we're going to try to try to get through. But before we get to that, is this going to be like a big ta-da entrance? <laughs> Derek McGee is a fellow board member who's also a minister in town and, and also a critical part of our community and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that he works with a, uh, a lobby firm, Johnson & Blanton. These are some excellent, excellent people. They're excellent lobbyists. But Johnson & Blanton became a very big sponsor when they heard that uh, Clay was coming in, and they lent us the expertise of Derek. So I wanted to start with, and we're going to get your questions, but I wanted to start with Clay, the big question. When you were here two years ago, uh, it's almost a perfect bookend. When you were here, we had, there was a major event in American politics. And it would be a cliche for us to stand here and say, I don't like this about Trump, I don't like that about Trump. And that would be a failure of this conversation. But as a historian, as somebody who can put something like this in context, what are your thoughts about where we are as a nation relative to the election of Donald Trump? Well, first of all, let me say how, how delighted I am to be back. And thank you. And Derek, I've just oh, thank had you a for chance to back. meet you for the first day. And thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I want to say one Jefferson thing before I go on. Jefferson would have mixed feelings about Tallahassee, uh, because his grandson, Francis Epps, was here and played a huge role in the creation of the university and the law school. And that would be great news to Jefferson, uh, spreading the good news from the University of Virginia, uh, out here onto the frontier. <laughs> As it certainly was seen in, um, in Jefferson's time, but, I come from North Dakota. If you know North Dakota, we have uh, one of the four state capitals that are not neoclassical. It's a stupid tower. Uh, that's all I want to say about Tallahassee. Uh, so Jefferson, Jefferson designed the neoclassical revival, and all, almost all state capitals are beautiful domed structures. We, we made up for it with our law school. Right. Yeah. So model, model just saying he would, he would love his grandson's presence here and be a little surprised by your architectural taste. As we all are. <laughs> but, you know, but as to this, this question of what, what does the election and more importantly, the behavior, the, the post-election behavior of Donald Trump say 
about this country. I'd say, first of all, we've been here before, not quite in this measure, uh, but George Wallace, Pitchfork Ben Tillman, Huey Long, Andrew Jackson. There's a, there's a long populist tradition in American life of a figure who comes along and thwarts what he or she regards as the norms. And we've been through this before, and we survive it every time. And so I think that if you take the long view, I think you, you cheer up a little bit um, about all of this. You know, I, I do think that President Trump has really testing Jeffersonian principles of civility and mutual respect and tolerance and scientifically-based discourse and and things of that sort. And so it, it it has to be a little troubling, I think, to all of us. But I guess what here's what I've been thinking about, Steve. I've been reading a series of books about why the Trump followers are so angry. What What is the fuel of this? What's going on here? There's a whole series of them. And, and, and some of them are very good books. And I, and if you linger afterwards, I'll give you a, a list of, of some of them. But part of this is, is false promises by the right. So any politician who says, when you send me to Washington on day one, I'm going to destroy the National Endowment for the Humanities, or I'm going to never vote to raise the death ceiling, or I'm going to take us out of the UN, that's a warning flag that the minute that's said, because this is easy to say and incredibly right. hard to accomplish. And so one thing is a set of false promises. And these books all, some of them by liberals and some by conservatives and some by people in between, all say that the, the far right has been making promises for the past 30 years about what it will do on day one, and those promises can't be kept. And so when those promises aren't kept, the people who wanted those promises to be fulfilled get angrier and more frustrated and more disillusioned. So there, there's that. There's also, and I think I really want to take this part of it seriously, the, the intelligentsia, the left, the university crowd, the foundation crowd, have been pretty awful to the conservatives of the United States. For a long time. For a very long time. Mean-spirited, condescending, patronizing. You know, and, and, the, and the right, well, I come from North Coast, so I won't even say the right, but the, the people in the heartland, the people who are not in the cultural elites at Harvard and Stanford and so on, they feel put upon and ignored and put down and, and treated as, as country bumpkins and yokels and then we have these symbolic moments, as when Mrs. Clinton said during her husband's first adultery crisis, you mean I should stay home and make cookies and stand by my man? And, and that upset a whole range of people. And then Barack Obama in San Francisco said, well, this crowd that's not sure of the future, they cling to their guns and their Bibles. That kind of talk by the Martha's Vineyard cultural elites of this country is deeply offensive to regular people. And it, it becomes symbolic of something much bigger, a, a resentment that just grows and grows and grows. And so I think Donald Trump is, in a sense, the answer to that in a really snotty way. You know, I mean, just saying... <laughs> Both we, an insult we, and a compliment all at the same time. You know, or, to, or to take a more serious <laughs> issue, when the Trump-Clinton axis refused <clears throat> to, to call Islamic terrorism Islamic terrorism, that's deeply upsetting to people who can see in front of them that this is an act of Islamic terrorism. Political correctness, you know, that being scolded for the way you talk about the world when you haven't been had the chance to be brought up to the new standards of discourse, all of these things 
I think, create a culture of resentment. And then the last thing I'll say about this, although I'm shortening a very complicated situation, but since the Reagan revolution in 1980, we've had the rise of talk radio and talk television. Mm -hmm. And so you have Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Michael Savage and Michael Medved and Bill O'Reilly and a range of others who have given voice to these resentments and in fact have whipped them into a frenzy, have become rich and powerful by throwing kerosene on these resentments. And in doing so, they give legitimacy to opinions that maybe we hold in the privacy of our homes but don't dare speak in public. And they've said, go ahead and speak. This is true. And, and they, and these cultural leaders don't, and this happens on the left too, don't get me wrong, but these cultural leaders don't say, please read, collect evidence, be critical thinkers, be skeptical of what you hear on this program, uh, think for yourself. They say, no, here are the talking points about why Obama is unfit for the presidency. And now the left, of course, is doing it um, in the opposite direction. So I, so I think that the, the rise of cable media and particularly single vision media has polarized the country. When I was growing up, in a backwater, North Dakota, we had two channels. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember this. And you had to get up out of your chair to turn the channel, <laughs> which, you know, was all the exercise we ever got in North Dakota. And, and it was NBC and CBS. And so whenever anything happened, when John Kennedy was killed, when Martin Luther King was killed, when there were street riots, when Watts occurred, when Vietnam heated up, we would go to CBS and we would listen to Eric Severide. And Eric Severide was a left-of-center cultural commentator. Not everyone agreed with him, but he was civil, and everyone then talked about what he said. So the whole country had a common text. Right. We no longer have a common text. We have Sean's text and Rachel's text. Mm -hmm. and we also have social text. media feeding yeah, that. I just need to go ahead and find information to reinforce my prior-held opinion. I can be reinforced that way, and I don't have to listen to what you have to say. So Trump is the is the manifestation of a series of cultural and social and economic dynamics that have led us to this point. And when I'm watching all of this every night, as I do, I'm kind of addicted to it, as I think all of us are. It's like, it's like a train wreck. You just want to see what's going to happen next. I, I try to step back and realize that this is, this is the tip of a much larger phenomenon of anger, frustration, mutual misunderstanding, a kind of a coming apart of any sense of American unity and consensus. And I would say this, I, I basically come from the more liberal side of the equation, but not on all issues. But until the left, until the Martha's Vineyard crowd and major media take seriously the resentment of the heartland, we cannot resolve this issue. We cannot resolve this issue by sneering or turning away in disgust. So political discourse has probably been changed for at least the next generation as a result of what we're experiencing right now. In your estimation, Clay, have the American people changed as a result of this? Are you, when I hear you saying this is the manifestation of seething anger, seething fear that people have been feeling for a while. I think it's fear. I think everyone's frightened. If you're not frightened right now, I don't think you're really paying attention. So I'm serious because... Just take one, I'll just give one example, but the, the economy is going to change so dramatically over the next 30 years. Robotics in North Dakota, where I live, we have the first McDonald's in the state of North Dakota that doesn't have a human being in it. Robotics, nanotechnology, computing, automation are going to sweep through the economy. 
it's not clear how we're going to employ people. You know, Switzerland had a plebiscite last year to decide whether to give everyone 2,500 euros per month, sort of monopoly money, because people have to buy their groceries, people have to buy their fuel, and so if you can't work, if your economy can't supply jobs, then you have to find another way to allow people to have the basic necessities of life. And the recovery from the debacle in 2007 and eight, I think, has been a very partial recovery, and people are frankly worried about the future. We're worried about the fact that when we send our children to even a state school, it's ruinously expensive, much less Harvard. And hard to get into. So I just think that there's fear, anxiety, discontentment, a sense of where are we headed as a nation. We haven't had clear leadership, and our leader now, this is the only way I would condemn President Trump as opposed to, to say, President Obama, whatever you think of either of them. President Obama appeared to be trying to puzzle through American life Trump does seem to just want to flip off the establishment, which may be a healthy sign of no confidence, but it doesn't get us to the next step. It, their their opinion is to be that we have to break it more before we can fix it. And I don't know how you feel, but I don't want it broken much more, really. No, it's not. Jimmy. Derek, you have any thoughts about the election of Trump? Well, I, I do, and it's interesting. And, and I want to, I'm going to say something. I'm going to shift it to a question for you, Clay. So as an, as an African American in America, born and raised here and then seeing what's going on. You aforementioned about Jefferson being a person who was who was determined to be civil and to uphold civility. And you see America in 140 characters, I can be known as civil and become uncivil and be defined as uncivil based on 140 characters, which is Twitter, of course. And you see that and there are individuals who do everything through social media they would not do in your face. And you look at the election, for example. I mean, there were many, there were 16 candidates for the Republican nomination, and most people didn't think Trump had a chance of getting it. When, when you look at it, and they say that Jeb Bush isn't conservative enough to even win his own ticket. Um, when Ronald Reagan at one point was the epitome of the Republican Party, and now you don't think he can even get it. From a Jefferson standpoint, would Jefferson, as you know him, survive in today's America? No. Um, His yeah. campaign plan would have not been all that good. <laughs> I'm going to go back to Monticello and hide. And, and then before you answer that, and assuming the answer was going to be no anyway, what, what adaptation would he have to make to be able to survive, even well, as a citizen, let alone? Right well, there. Jefferson could tweet, <laughs> we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Uh, given the choice between newspapers without government or government without newspapers, I wouldn't hesitate to prefer newspapers. Jefferson was good at tweets. Uh, he, he might have really mastered this. He was a pithy, pithy revolutionary. I, I, you know, I, I don't think Jefferson believed, and this is, this is the hardest part of it he, for us. He believed that, he said this in his first inaugural address, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. Mm. Think of that. We have called by separate names men of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. You haven't heard that for a while, have you? Right. Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. He said, whenever I hear another man express an opinion which is not mine, I say to myself, he has a right to his opinion as I do to mine. His error does me no injury. <laughs> Jefferson spoke about artificial good humor. He said to his grandson, look, 
Whenever anyone says something abrasive, offensive, demeaning, or aggressive to you, respond with kindness and civility. And he said, you will be amazed at how effective this is. He said, it's best if we're born with good humor, but few are, but we can adopt artificial good humor. And if you will show artificial good humor every time and ratchet down the aggression rather than ratchet it up, not only will this demonstrate to the other person the arts of civility, but it has this way of creating harmonies. And you realize the things that you might have said in the heat of the moment are things you would not have said two days from now and so on. So Jefferson understood this. He understood that we cannot be a republic unless there's a high level of mutual harmony and goodwill. And so by that standard, we're in very, very, very deep trouble. I don't think he could survive in this environment. And and before we go on, I'll just say another thing, and, and it has to be said. Jefferson was a racist and a slaveholder. This well, keep going though. But, but yeah. A misogynist. I mean, he was a lot of things that we would; those would not be true. As we would. I don't think he was a misogynist. Here. He was a male chauvinist pig. Right. So that's different from a misogynist. <laughs> uh, but he, I mean, he also helped to dispossess Native Americans of their lands. Yes, there's a what we would call a dark side or a, a, a bad side to Thomas Jefferson, and that's become that's come to the fore, and we fixate on it now. I think a little bit unfairly. But the fact remains, he owned as many as 600 human beings. He bought and sold them. At one point, he was trying to monetize the reproduction of slaves at Monticello. He had apparently had sexual congress with a slave woman, a woman he owned. I mean, that is by some structural definition, a form of rape, you could say. There's a lot that Jefferson has to answer for. And if if we are now removing Robert E. Lee from the public square and Stonewall Jackson from the public square, as a historian, I would say that there is no firewall that is inevitably going to protect Jefferson from what I'm calling the de-Stalinization movement in America. That's why, do we, why do we attack Jefferson before we attack Washington, before we attack five of the seven first presidents. Why why Jefferson? Well, there are two reasons. One is that Washington freed all of his slaves at the death of his wife. And so he realized that both Jefferson and Washington knew slavery was incapable of being justified. Jefferson found a way to live with it. Washington grew increasingly uneasy. And in the last years of his life, he willed that his slaves be kept by his wife Martha until her death and then freed, and they were. So that's number one. Jefferson had several chances along these lines, and he ducked them, partly because he was broke. Washington was a millionaire by our standards. The second reason is that Washington wasn't foolish enough to say all men are created equal. If you talk that way, if you say these things about universal human right, and then you own 600 human beings... We don't have 18,000 of Washington's letters at the Library of Congress. Right. Jefferson exposed himself by being one... Put it this way, Steve. If Jefferson had never owned a slave, he would be regarded as one of the single greatest human rights advocates in the history of the world. He would be on a on a plane with beyond Martin Luther King, beyond... Frederick Douglass, I mean, he would be seen as, 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 as with Gandhi and a handful of others as one of the supreme advocates of human right in the history of the planet. But he owned human beings. And so 
this can only be squared as hypocrisy. There's no, I've, I've spent 30 years trying to figure out the answer to this. Well, it's almost like become pop culture to point out to Jefferson's hypocrisy. You know, the man who said, talked about fiscal constraint died hopelessly in death. The man who wrote the words, all men are created equal, owned several hundred of them. I mean, and on and on. Uh, and there's no shortage of books and papers on this very subject. So maybe what you're saying is he's written so much, he's, he's an easier target. And I just want to repeat, if this movement continues of erasing from our public lives the characters that we no longer can assimilate under our moral righteousness, it is not clear to me that Jefferson survives this. We could see statues of Jefferson being pulled down in America. And so that I think that calls for a very sober conversation as a people about erasure in the public square, because if you don't keep Jefferson, well, in Hamlet says, treat every man according to his deserts and who shall escape whipping. You know, which one of us, if, if there were an x-ray machine that could show each of our unresolved issues, I'd be the first out the door. <laughs> I don't know about the two of you. You might be perfect, but. I'll be on your tail. <laughs> but, 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 but he has a Bible-based church, so we're all in trouble. That's why I need him. <laughs> we, I, in my, I'm an Augustinian. I believe we are all sinners. We're all fallen, and that we're capable of unbelievable uh, malfeasance. And so I think Jefferson has a lot to answer for, let me put it that way. And it's not. And I worry about Jefferson. When I started doing Jefferson, he was like the superhero, and now he's like almost the supervillain. How can one country in 30 years make that adjustment and not have some fallout, not have some social anxieties? Isn't that normal, though, in the course of history, like kind of a meta-history that presidents kind of rise? Look at us right now, Hamilton, oh. the scoundrel that he is, uh, is now so revered, people paying $2,000 to watch a play about him. Yeah, when you said you were going to meet at the moon, I thought that's Hamilton, but then I thought, no, it's Aaron Burr. I mean, <laughs> what? You know, we're at a jazz dive. But, you know, it's interesting, too. You mentioned and asked the question about how does Jefferson fit in today's time, and you said he wouldn't. I would almost challenge that in this regard, Clay, because you think of a Donald Trump. Here's what Donald Trump has done. He's Donald Trump has also given a voice to people who felt like they were voiceless. There are people who identify with Donald Trump, and they feel like, I now have a chance to speak. And everything that, that Steve described and you describe about Jefferson, albeit bad in today's context, there are still individuals who would identify with that. Yes. So he may not have to adapt much. I mean, it may be hard because it may not be as prevalent as it was, but there are still individuals who would align with that way of, of living and thinking. Yes, except this. I think that if it's about leadership. Let's just say that the, the little quick and dirty analysis I did about why people are so angry and upset and frustrated is, is reasonably accurate. We need to address that, but we need to address it by understanding it and by finding a clarification and finding a new paradigm or a new way of seeing that is life-affirming, that is respectful, that is cultural lifting. Someone like Donald Trump seems to want to speak in ways that degrade rather than uplift. And great leaders don't degrade, great leaders uplift. Think of Lincoln. The great leaders in the world, like Gandhi and Lincoln and Martin Luther King, all imperfect, highly imperfect, help us to get to the breakthrough that we need to have, but weren't going to get to it without their leadership. 
But when leaders try to bring us down into the swamp and to, and to pit us against each other and to demean our institutions and to call names and to, and to lower the tone of our national discourse, was, it was low enough without any further help. That's not good leadership. That might be culturally interesting and even appropriate at a moment when the country is broken. I guess the question I would ask is where from here? Once, yeah. once Trump has gotten it out of his system, whatever, they're still there. What comes afterward? How does this get fixed? How does, how does the white anger get addressed? How does black anger get addressed? Mm-hmm. So that it's one thing to, to get it all, to take all of our clothes off and expose the unresolved issues of American life. But then there has to be a way to resolve them. And, and I don't see in his behavior, I'm, I don't know what he's thinking about privately, but in his public behavior, I don't see a desire to heal. I see a desire to further alienate. I think where you were going to, Derek, I would be hopeful if we were able to transport Jefferson to today in his time as an Enlightenment leader. You know, when Madison arrives in Philadelphia, he's holding books given to him by Thomas Jefferson, right? Here's how we're going to create a new transition in government without war, with with a Bill of Rights ultimately when they came back. You said we had to have a Bill of Rights. I would think a person like that in today's time would also take a leadership role. He would accept the fact we've changed that we oh, don't sure. no, we no longer own people, and he probably would be a feminist. I mean, one of your episodes you talked about how, well, Jefferson of course wouldn't believe in evolution because it wasn't a concept. He was a leading scientist of his day, but when he sent Meriwether Lewis out west, he was hoping he'd find the mammoth. And so, but but he was a leading scientist of his day, and I would I would be hopeful, and we don't know it's, it can't happen, mm-hmm. that he would be a leader yeah. who would help resolve those wounds or lead us to a, a better place, which is what he did with America to, to some degree. He got us out from the shackles of King George and said, let's create our own government. Let's, he, he didn't like the fixing of the Confederacy, of course, but let's, let's move this thing forward as an Enlightenment leader. We don't know, of course, because Jefferson died on the 4th of July, 1826, but my own sense, and I've spent, I've spent more time with Thomas Jefferson than I have with any other human being, right. which, you know, talk about loser, you know, but, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I, I mean, Jefferson is almost the love of my life. I mean, I've, I've fallen in love with him. There are times when I can't stand to be in the same zip code with him. There are times when we have a companionable relationship. Then I have a new, you know, like any marriage. He doesn't write. Um, and he doesn't write, you know, but, but I, so I think I know Jefferson about as well as Jefferson can be known, but there's an impenetrable part to Jefferson, all these inconsistencies. Would you call it a crusting? There's a crust, there's yeah. a, there's a, yeah. there's a patina, you know, he, he kept five daily diaries and, you know, he was obsessive compulsive. I'll use the nicer of the two terms, but Jefferson was <clears throat> a man who loved to stay on the surface and really nail it. And when I, when I think about that, you know, he never really came to terms with certain issues in his life, but look what it produced, you know, the University yeah. of Virginia. The Library of Congress. Declaration um, of Independence. You know, a few, few people in human history have achieved what Jefferson achieved. And I think we do have to take the whole man view of, of everybody, the whole person view. But I like to think that if Jefferson had lived, he would have, he would have grown with the country. That doesn't necessarily mean he's with Nancy Pelosi at dinner. <laughs> I think that's Well, he would have had her over. He would have had her over to, to chat. Well, but I think that Jefferson would have grown with the country and he would have for example, just to take slavery, he said, show me black achievement. Well, today, 
there's black achievement in every possible direction. His, his fear in his own time was that Africans and African Americans came from a different software in a foreign tribal world and that they weren't up to it. We know that's not true anymore. We know that, we know that no one can really make that claim in the 21st century. Nobody. And so I think he would have grown with the country. He couldn't have been a sexist in our time. Well, this was a man who taught his daughter Greek. Right. He taught her to read, and that was unheard of back then. That was, you know, pretty leading edge. He, well, he wanted this. I love this little piece. Jefferson wanted his daughter Martha to be well educated. And when he was asked why, he said, because the chances that she marries a blockhead, I uh, estimate at 14 to 1. <laughs> and he said, she therefore will be responsible for the education of her children. And so it's an instrumental view of enlightenment, but. Wow. Uh, Jefferson's not without a certain sense of humor, but I think he would have, I think he would not necessarily be a social liberal today, but he would not be an unreconstructed southern white reactionary. I, I don't think there's any likelihood that that could be the case. So the second half of this conversation, we want to talk about statues, yes. monuments, flags, et cetera. But before we get there, let's, let's take it down just a little, have a little fun. Since you know Jefferson so well, and he were here today, and you were going to give him something, you talked about this the other day. You would right. give him an iPhone. What do you think his reaction would be to the iPhone? And well, I, I'm being, I, I, or a Samsung, or not a BlackBerry. <laughs> oh, it, it, it would definitely be an Apple. Uh, it's Jefferson, after all. Um, uh, he's not going to go with a PC. Well, the, you know, think about it. So I gave a lecture on this not so long ago at a university for a commencement, and I held up my mother's telephone. So my mother lives in this t- house in Dickinson, North Dakota, and she has this black telephone that weighs about 10 pounds. Remember those? And, and a rotary phone. Oh, and wow. it was hooked to the wall with a wire. And I wanted to give this lecture. And the phone hasn't been used for 35 years. And I said, can I take it? And she said, no. If you cut the cord, AT&T will come after us. You know, <laughs> remember that when you worried that you couldn't mess with your phone? And so I cut the cord. And I took it and I, and I held it up. And I held Wait, up you my, cut the cord? I cut the cord. <laughs> That's a good son. And uh, finally, you know, <laughs> moved out of my bedroom. Uh, uh, Did you take all your Jefferson books with you? <laughs> take your costumes and get. You know? uh, but uh, so I held up the smartphone and I held up this nine-pound phone and I said, "This this can tell you where the International Space Station is when it crosses over your house. You can do your stocks and bonds. It can tell you the weather in any city on Earth. Uh, you can order." Books from Amazon with one click. You can read almost any book in the history of the world on this device. Uh, and on and on and on. You all know. And then I held up the other one. I said, this did one thing. And not very well. And when I was nine or ten, I had my first girlfriend, Linda Coco. And we had two phones in our house. Well, maybe, maybe it was 17. I don't know. <laughs> I, it could have been 35. The date's not important. And how I, old are you? <laughs> we're still in contact. When I would call her, which I did once a week regularly, I had to be on the phone where the cord, where your whole family is watching this. There's no privacy of any sort. I mean, that has an in- inhibiting effect on romance. So here you have this smartphone, and I, I teach this experimental humanities course in North Dakota, and I say to the students, this phone has more information in it than Thomas Jefferson could have dreamed of having. 
You know, he had a library of 7,000 volumes, which he paid for with money that he didn't have. That was a large library. This phone has access to 700,000 volumes, 7 million volumes. There's, I say, if there's a fact you want to know, how, how deep is Lake Tahoe? How many people live in Estonia? What's the gross domestic product of South Africa? You can know this instantly. So we now have in our hands this device that is, we're used to it, so we aren't even aware of what it means, but it is the most revolutionary tool that we have ever had. And Jefferson, of course, would have them. And computers and GPS units. You know, Lewis, out on the Lewis and Clark Trail, spent hundreds of hours trying to ascertain latitude and longitude out in the middle of the night with telescopes and blizzards. And he, he brought back all of his latitude and longitudinal data and gave it to a mathematician in the War Department named Ferdinand Hassler. And Hassler worked with it for two years and pronounced it gibberish. You know, with this device, you know where you are anywhere on Earth. We need to teach young people how to use this tool. And we need people to realize that the talking points that come from Rachel Maddow or from Bill O'Reilly are, are not sufficient, that this tool can open almost any world to you if you know how to use it. That was kind of the vision of some of the early visionaries, Marshall McLuhan and others, that this world of information would be used for the greater good, but we just use it to silo, right? We just use it to kind of go into our, our little corners. But you, you, you had an interesting perspective about how Jefferson would adapt to the, uh, to the iPhone. Will you share that with us? Remind me. <laughs> well, at first he would be He's overwhelmed. Listen to 750 hours. <laughs> <laughs> at first he would be overwhelmed, but by the third day. Oh, no, by the third day he'd have it all figured out and he'd have an app in every direction and everything he wanted. I mean, if you, if you just spent tonight when you go home, if you spent an hour just inventing an app that you might want, something, you want to know something about sports, you want to know something about the, where Venus is at the moment, you, you want, you decide what app would help your life or make it more entertaining. I promise you that app is there. Jefferson would master this, and this device would become at least a 100 times more effective in his hand than it is in mine. And he would do that in three days because he knew what he wanted. He was, a, he was an information gatherer. He, one of his three heroes was Francis Bacon, and Bacon's motto was knowledge is power. But I'll just, I, I feel like I'm talking too much. I want to hear more from you and Derek, but I just want to say this much more. Here's where we are. Jefferson said, if you expect to be a nation ignorant and free, you expect what never has been and never can be in the history of the world. I think we are testing that proposition wow. in a profound way at wow. the moment, that we are a nation ignorant and free. And Jefferson's view is one of the two is going to give. You have got to get more serious as a civilization if you expect to solve these problems. And the fact that, that the election fell out as it did is a sign that our civics, I mean, I, th I don't want to be a Trump basher because that's just like so easy, but it is not clear to me that the president of the United States understands how bills are made into law or how the constitution works or our tripartite, tripartite system of government. Luckily, he's surrounded by people who do, but we need a much, much, much deeper civic culture in this country. Derek, I want to ask you a question. Yes, your, your job takes you over to the Tallahassee, the Capitol, every day. Uh, you interact with lawmakers, the governor's office, et cetera. Have you seen an impact of the Trump election on what's happening over at the Capitol, either good or bad? I would, I would say yes, but I would, I would say it in this regard, and, so, and I kind of shared this at lunch, that you know what I find interesting is is the unwillingness or the inability 
for individuals to to agree to disagree. So I am a conservative and, and don't shy away from it, but I can still find fault in what our president does. And I disagree with it. And I feel like there are times when if 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 I'm here, someone else feel like they have to be here, that we can't we can't meet here. Is is either I'm I'm black or I'm white, I'm I'm right or I'm left. There's there is no middle whatsoever. And you see it a lot. And though I, I think that there is a fight and I think there is a desire to still keep civility in, in the democratic process. I think that part is great. I mean, listen, our legislature here, and we have two great leaders here up front. Um, there are 160 legislators. And as long as I've been in the process, I'm going into my 17th session. Republicans have been in control the entire time I've been in the process. So I don't even know pre-term limits. I don't know when Democrats were in charge. I don't know how that looks whatsoever. I'm a believer of good public policy. But we, it, we, we talk like Rubio today. Yeah, exactly. Rubio is, is now taking on Trump on several key issues. True. Our, what I was thinking like last month, a month before, before Rubio started setting that leadership tone mm-hmm. that it's okay to disagree with the president, there was kind of everybody was getting a little tribal, a little insular mm-hmm. and being careful. Are you seeing any of that change in the legislative process? As far as challenging leadership? Well, challenging the, gov- the president, for example. Republicans, Democrats, let, let's, let's flip it for a second. Okay. If you're a Democrat, when Obamacare passed, any neutral citizen would look at Obamacare and say, this is a highly flawed piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. I was one of them. But it's very difficult as a Democrat to speak openly that Obamacare is flawed because now it's been named after, after your party's leader. Mm-hmm. And so that resistance, reluctance to criticize members of your own party. Are you seeing that in the halls of Tallahassee that Republican leaders are hesitant to criticize the president? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, and those who would criticize are definitely doing it behind closed doors. They they dare not do it publicly. But I think you, you definitely are seeing, like as I mentioned before, the inability or, the, or this unwillingness whatsoever. You definitely see it. I mean, conversations you have, there there is this comfort, but there is also a penalty that is paid if you go, I mean, you mentioned Rubio, for example, kudos to him, but Rubio's on an island right now doing this by himself in a sense. I mean, he, he, especially on the Puerto Rico issue, I mean, he's, he's found something to stick to, but who else is standing with him? Very few um, people. Very few people. And, and I think Rubio kind of counted up the cost and realized this was, this was going to happen. But, but he also walked, he's walked the, the, the land of Puerto Rico and talked, looked in the eyes of the people. And so it's hard, as we mentioned before, it's hard for you to sit down with somebody and get to know them personally and then walk away and bash them. And I think, but, but you don't see many in that regard. And, and um, but in the halls, it, it, it's very interesting um, to see this, but, but you don't, you don't see individuals. And as I mentioned, it's, it's, if I say I'm here, if I say anything that's away from here, then I'm pushed all the way over here. Like I, there's no way I can challenge. And I just think that's unfortunate for democracy. I think it's unfortunate for a process itself. I think, I think about the, the, the founding fathers and things of that nature. I think, I think in that room and in, in those gatherings, you know, we're talking about Jefferson, even the internal battle within yourself, you know, I think has to take place. One person can't be right in every area. Um, it has to be okay. I mean, you look at any tweets of, of any of our leaders. I mean, one tweet that goes out is retweeted thousands of times and and that leads to it um, in that regard but I, I see it every day yeah we saw it I mean you saw it under the Obama Democrats mm-hmm. being fiercely protective mm-hmm. of him I was just wondering because Trump is so uh, demonstrably unpopular that some Republicans would say that we would break ranks now Marco is different because 
he's not going to ever be defeated in a primary. True. Okay. And by the way, it's another four years True. before he's in a primary. Absolutely. Most everybody else in the process either ha- has to go home to either a Democratic primary where you only face Democrats or a Republican primary uh, where you only face Republicans. So as long as Trump is popular among the frequent voting Republican electorate, as if I was a Republican member of the Florida House of Representatives, for example, or a member of Congress, I have to protect my right flank, and that means I can't publicly differ with my president. Absolutely. Also add on to that, one of the greatest desires of either party that's in charge is to be able to be in a position when Supreme Court vacancies come open. And so, you know, let's, let's be realistic here. You know, it, it's no matter what the president is or is not doing is when a vacancy comes open, you want your party to be able to have say. So even here in Florida, I mean, we're going to have some who are mandatory termed out and desire is in that regard. And so I think even if there are individuals um, who differ and I believe there are many who would differ. But I think ultimately it's is don't differ too much because you still want to make sure that, that your person and your party has to say so over that bench. So let me let me do this for now. I'd like to get some questions from the audience. So, uh, Liz, are you going to read the questions? How do you want to we've, proceed? We've got a couple written. Bill's going to go ahead, and then I'll walk to you if you've got a question. There's one up here, I think, Liz. So, so here's a question from one of our folks in the audience that points us in the direction of the statues discussion. Is there a true loss to removing statues of Jefferson or other founding fathers? Their lessons and words could still be taught. Yes. You could easily remove Woodrow Wilson from the campus of Princeton, and there's a statue of Jefferson at Columbia University. You could remove that. You could even remove Jefferson from the University of Virginia, although that's a pretty bold thing to do since <laughs> since he designed it. But And you wouldn't necessarily lose the Declaration of Independence. You wouldn't necessarily lose the greatness of the University of Virginia. I, I, I guess I just want to speak to this for a minute. I think these should be handled on an individual basis. Depends on when they were erected and yeah. for what purpose. I'm a northerner, and I don't pretend to understand southern culture, but if statues were put up in 1962, 63, and 4 as a way of white solidarity against the civil rights movement, that seems to be an easier choice to me to get rid of, uh, just as some of the Confederate flags that were designed during the 50s and 60s, but not they don't have an ancient heritage. I would be more willing to get rid of those because they strike me as political acts that occurred in the face of the progress, the racial progress of this country. That's different from a statue of Woodrow Wilson, I think. So I think that you really have to go about this on a state-by-state basis. I don't think there should be a national standard. I don't think there should be national legislation about this. There should be community discussions just like this, and, and, and sometimes they're going to get heated, and they should. These are These are hard questions. But I'll just say this as a as a humanities scholar, I get, I've been giving these talks on Shakespeare around the country. I'd love to come here and do that sometime. But, you know, in the play The Tempest, Prospero is this Renaissance prince. He's a quintessential European. And at the end of the play, he's kind of sorting everything out. And he turns to this slave that he has named Caliban, who's Caliban is a kind of a Native American that he's enslaved. And Caliban is maybe a cannibal, a brute. He's a savage. And in explaining this whole thing, Prospero turns to Caliban and says, This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. I think that's a metaphor for a much bigger issue, that every human being has to, has to acknowledge the shadow side of their, of their life, the unresolved things, the, the, the prejudice, the bigotry, the, we all have it, I certainly do, 
And I think you have to acknowledge that. And, and a culture has to, too. The history of the United States is a tragic history. We displaced the Native Americans, engaged in cultural genocide, at times actual genocide. I'm from North Dakota, where this is a very, very volatile issue because of the Dakota Access Pipeline controversy. We've conquered the continent, made peons to the extent that we've been able to of the Native peoples. We brought slaves from Africa against their will. There has been class warfare in this country. Government, until the age of Theodore Roosevelt, usually turned on the, the strikers and shot them down in the streets or clubbed them. Anyone who thinks that the history of this country has been a kind of Pollyanna story of progress is not facing the interesting, complicated, rich, sometimes tragic history of the United States. And the South knows this more than anyone because of the Civil War and the agony of the civil rights movement. We have to we have to turn to American history and say it's a very, very rich tapestry, not without considerable tragedy and darkness. And so when you just wake up one morning and say, well, we'll get rid of Stonewall Jackson and that'll be the end of it, it seems to me that's not the right answer because there needs to be a very complex conversation about these things. And that conversation doesn't isn't forwarded by doing to Stonewall Jackson what we did to the statues of Saddam Hussein. I'm for, I'm for a much more deliberative process, maybe counter statues or interpretive signs. But then again, I'm a white person. I've never been treated with open prejudice. It's easy for me to talk in that dispassionate sort of way. But I think this, what I'm calling the de-Stalinization of America, is a very, very dangerous process. And it presumes that we're that we're morally righteous and pure. I always think, what will they say of us 200 years from now? It's not going to be a pretty picture, I don't think. Derek, is something lost if we remove some of these statues from the town square? Well, actually, I think that was the question, right? Is something lost? I guess the inference of the question was, well, it's not a big deal if we remove Jefferson from the town square as an example. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Well, I think I think there's a loss already because my concern, whether the statue stays or goes, is I, I, I feel as if we are losing history anyway. I think as the generations are going on, there's less and less knowledge and understanding of history in that regard. And so whether <clears throat> a statue is erected or not, it's it's how many people still remember Thomas Jefferson and his contributions to America in that regard. And so um, other than a field trip for history class in that regard, you're looking in a book. And so I think I, I definitely agree the date of which it's done is important. The I think date, that's yes. important. For me, as an African-American, if you remove a statue, it's almost like I'm bleeding. You see me bleeding. You put a Band-Aid on it, and it's blood is still coming out. You feel like you doctored the wound. It, it doesn't until you address it. And I think the main point is the conversation that we as Americans continue to avoid having, because it's a tough conversation to have. Um, the realization you mentioned, Jefferson having 600 slaves. But at that time, during that day, it probably wasn't seen in that regard. In today's context, a little bit differently. But again, my concern is statue or no statue is we're, we don't know our history. Um, and that's in, that's in every culture, every ethnicity. We don't know our, our history whatsoever. And, and, and the fight, my grandfather and my grandmother, who are now in, who passed away, they're in heaven, as I believe they, they would have, would have, would have scolded us if they knew that my family members weren't going to the polls to vote. Knowing what they had gone through to get a chance to vote and us choosing not to vote. And I think that's the bigger issue in itself um, in that regard. I often think about what my grandfather would say about a statute up or down um, in that regard. And, and their main conversation was us never, never forgetting 
what our ancestors had to endure for the privilege to be able to have that. And that's to, to me, that's a much bigger conversation than the statue itself. I think the, the, there are several ways to look at this. I think the, the question, though, there's another perspective, which is these statues as art and public art, I think, is, is a vital element to your community. Now, I, I have my own standard, and, and I would certainly say statues like the one when, when in the 50s in Memphis they exhumed the body of Nathan Bedford Forrest and his wife, moved him to the town square, erected a, a monument of him in full dress uniform, and pointed it north to send a message to the majority black citizens of Memphis that we are still in defiance, we're still fighting this war. In my humble opinion, that statue needs to be taken down or put somewhere where that act of defiance by the people who ran, ran Memphis at the time should be remembered. To me, it's about two things. It's about content. What does the statue represent? What does the statue mean? Why is the statue there? It's content. Then the context of how was that statue put there? Was it put there at the height of the Jim Crow era to send to send a message to black citizens in that community or black members of that community who prevented from becoming citizens? Was it put up in 1962, 63, 64? If it was put up then, then you have to look at it with a little difference. Let me let me take it to full square. We're having a debate now. You you visited with me the statue of Francis Epps, Thomas Jefferson's grandson. The students have voted. And two to one, they said, keep it. But there's a good example of public art. If you've seen the statue of Francis Epps, it's, it's, it's a beautiful statue. It's calm. It's, I would love to see a thing explaining not only was the two-time mayor of Tallahassee and made the major land grant to create the seminary west of the Suwannee, but he was also a slaveholder and the son of Thomas Jefferson, and that identifies his mixed legacy. And there's no way you could say that statue was put there in defiance to the black students at FSU uh, that's an absurd notion. I, I know the guy who built the statue. I know the guy who commissioned the statue, and that's not there. So what, Clay, sorry, I <laughs> went on. What do, you, what do you think the standards should be, and, and how should we address this as Americans? No, I agree with everything that you're both saying, but I'm just, I'm still very much disquieted by the whole business. So Woodrow Wilson, a person I don't particularly like very much, was the president of the United States. He was the governor of New Jersey. He, he wrote distinguished uh, books on constitutional history of the United States. This he is created a, a precursor to the United Nations. He, he died trying to defend the idea of an international league of nations. He worked valiantly to keep us out of World War I and meant it because he realized that war has a... He's a Jeffersonian in that regard. He realized that war has a degrading effect on everyone. And he was a sexist... And he was a serious racist, more than Jefferson, I would say. So, where are we with this? This is a pretty interesting and complicated human being, not without greatness. It seems to me that to, to just say, oh, because he was a sexist, and because he was a racist, and, and actually removed African Americans from the United States payroll and the government, he must go, that seems to me to be kind of a, spasmodic, righteous, unnuanced, uncontextualized point of view. On the other hand, these things are true of him. I'll take my own case. I was fortunate enough to be a Rhodes Scholar, and I went off to Oxford. More recently now, the Rhodes Scholars community that meets at Oxford every year for a reunion has stopped, has refused to make a toast to Cecil Rhodes because he was the father of Rhodesia. And I think, oh, wait a minute. 
you took the money, you competed, you, you begged for it, you, get, you, you did anything in your possible power to become a Rhodes Scholar so that then you can decide that he's a schnook? I mean, come on, you, if, if you feel that way about Jefferson, maybe you want to go to Harvard instead of the University of Virginia. But to be in those places and to take advantage of the, of the achievements of these mighty human beings, no one of which is just some guy off the street, and then to, to, to feel so righteous that you can say, I won't toast the man who gave me 30,000 pounds to go to Oxford, money of which surely came from his apartheidism in South Africa and Rhodesia, it just seems to me that it's so, well, I'll, I'll just calm down by saying, my mentor, Ev Albers of the North Dakota Humanities Council said, judgment is easy, understanding is hard. Judgment mm. is easy, understanding is hard. That's my motto. And it seems to me that we're, we're, we're operating in some haste here and that we really need a national conversation. And we were talking a little bit about this earlier today. The problem is that we need this national conversation at a time when we're not very well equipped for it. We're not good at conversation. We're not well, good look, at look, it Look anymore. at Broward County. Broward County Courthouse, for those of you who are not aware, the Broward County Courthouse is in Broward County. I know that's new information. So far, we're with you. And yeah. the namesake of the Broward County Courthouse is Governor Broward. And they recently removed the statue of Governor Broward from the Broward County Courthouse because it was deemed that he's an offensive fella. His offenses are true, uh, and, and, and perhaps the courthouse is not the best place to have somebody who did not believe in equal rights. But where does it go? The lead road in Broward County, again, stay with me here for those of you who are not familiar with South Florida, is called Broward Boulevard. I know there's many who would love to change the name of Broward County, but... Uh, it, it, it could be, it could be easily dismissed. We're not in the best time in America to have this conversation. We have a nuanced conversation. And a series of other conversations and our, and some of our national leaders are making it more difficult because of the way they, the reductionism of the way they talk about these questions. But I just remember like 10 years ago, do you remember this when we said, oh no, our, our young people are getting their history from John Stewart. Now we, we long for that golden age when they were getting it from John Stewart. <laughs> because now it's twi twi Twitter and, Snapchat and, you know, we, that was a golden age of information. Compared the book to face. We, yeah, we've got a couple more questions. Where are you guys? Right here down front. Okay. My name is Rainer Kirsten. I'm a young American, old in age. Good. Um, I wonder, this is not an American problem. Populists pop up all over the world and they struggle, the country struggle with exactly the same principle. I'm asking myself, do we understand the first three words of our Constitution, we the people? Who are we? Because when I look at the politics in the U.S., I'm stunned to see that this two-party system has changed into friend and enemy. Coming down totally to the people on the floor, we are not living in a society where Jefferson, had, when they wrote all these papers, they had a common friend, God. We have no common friend, we have no common enemy, and the one country in, in the world I know, which is the most demonstrative for being together, are the Dutch. The Dutch who have 82, 83 parties 
of which 30 go into an election. They have the worst language you can think of because they can swear every sentence has at least one swear word in there because that's the way they communicate. Those damn Dutch. My question is, <laughs> would Jefferson in today's environment have recommended to have two parties? Oh, you better be careful, Clay. Why? <laughs> I think... I think He didn't want any... Uh, Jefferson didn't want parties. Jefferson didn't like parties. He, in 1787, he wrote a letter to Edward Carrington in which he said, if I could only go to heaven at the head of a party, I would rather not go at all. Because he said, well, party A believes the bridge should go here, and party B says, if you put it there, it's the death of civilization as we know it, and then they, the election changes it, and they make the same decisions in the opposite way. The, the sort of demonization, the partisanship, the vilification of the other, the other with a capital O, appears to, Jefferson at the end of his life said this appears to be part of human nature, that we are a fractional uh, species. But he hoped for, he hoped for better. You know, whether we need to move to a parliamentary system and, and, and break the paradigm of the two parties is an interesting question. I know a little bit about this because I lived through Ross Perot, 19%, and I, I'm a student of Theodore Roosevelt. He got 29% as a third party candidate in 1912, the largest third party vote in the history of this country, but neither one, even Roosevelt couldn't shatter the two-party paradigm. And now you see that, well, Bob Woodward said on one of the major programs a couple of weeks ago, he said, we are now in a cold civil war. It's a civil war, but it's a non-shooting war really so good, far. Yeah. But we're in a cold civil war. I think there really are two Americas. If you look at the red-blue map on election night, we are, there are really two very distinct Americas. I happen to live in red America a little uneasily. Uh, but I lived in Boulder, Colorado, and I was a little uneasy in blue America, too. Um, it seems to me that we have to learn to stop talking in those binary terms. Didn't, once it was clear Hamilton had the ear of, Je of Washington, didn't Jefferson kind of go up to upstate New York and kind of corral his own little party? Kind of the beginnings of... Right, you've listened to too many shows, it's clear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but it's one of the things about Jefferson, right? He, he, you, could, you could pull one of the 18,000 letters, find out how much he hated parties, but yet he's squirreling away to kind of create one. Well, he, he felt that Hamilton was, was destroying the country, and so he decided that somebody should stop this. He tried to get Madison to do it, and Madison had the charisma of a bar of soap. And so Madison said, no, you have to do it. And they, they wound up forming the early Republican Party, now, it's been a long genealogy, but they formed the first small-R Republican Party as an opposition party to Hamiltonianism. And yes, so proving that he's inconsistent on this issue, too. I think <laughs> Did you have any a, thoughts about that? I didn't know. We're good. We're good. The, uh, uh, I don't, you know what's funny? I don't have as much of a problem with the two-party system, because I think you're right. It's inherent in human nature to go binary on things. Where I have a problem is that the two-party system has created a system that allows only those from the far left and only those from the far right to participate in determinative elections that the average citizen is not legally allowed to vote in. They're called primaries, and most citizens are excluded from them. Let me just give you two examples. Two people sitting at this front table who I deeply admire, Lorraine Osley and Kristen Jacobs. But in both of their seats... They will never face a serious general election competition. That race is over in the primary. Now, if you live in Kristen's seat or you live in Loran's seat and you happen to be a Republican or an Independent, which happens to be the majority of both of those seats, you don't get to vote 
in the primary that will determine one of them. Be We're fortunate those are two excellent representatives. They represent a broad constituency. They're not that partisan, you know, they're not so hyper-partisan. To me, the problem isn't the two-party system. It's what's happened is we've created these closed primaries and highly gerrymandered districts and a whole bunch of laws that give favor to parties and exclude, in most cases, a majority of voters. That's my problem with it. I know we have different different viewpoints on it. Different new questions? So Well, yeah, and you're not allowed to compromise, because if you compromise, as Eric Cantor started to do, you get thrown out, because when you go back home, the people in your far right or far left say, you know what, we're not going back. Look at Eric Cantor's story, real quick. He outspent his opponent 27 to 1. Yes, he did. And, 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 and the story that about Eric Cantor's defeat, he was the number two person in the House of Representatives. He had two points to his campaign. I've read every piece of mail and every article written on it. It was, one, that he said he would go across the street and talk to the President of the United States. He would have the audacity to negotiate with the President of the United States. Two, he was a mistake to shut down the government. Social Security checks have to be delivered. Parks have to be kept open. Roads have to be built. Veterans need to be served in our veterans' homes. The military needs to run. Shutting down the government, I admit, was a mistake. Those were the two things that defeated him because he went home to a closed partisan primary and lost in a landslide. So if you do compromise, you do try to work on solutions to the problem, you get get kicked off the island. So let me let me go to the next question from uh, Paul Conway. Uh, he said, "Please do not read my name out loud." <laughs> <laughs> In terms of removing statues, can we not draw a clear distinction between leaders of the Confederacy who tried to destroy the Union? Uh, by the way, a friend of mine said, "How about we have a rule? If you declare war on the United States." And lose, we don't build a statue in your honor. <laughs> and leaders of America, like Jefferson, who tried to build it despite their flaws. Excellent. In terms of removing statues, can we not draw a clear distinction between leaders of the Confederacy who tried to destroy the Union? Derek, why don't you take a stab at that? Yeah. All right. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a great question because, I, you know, when you, when you argue about statues keeping or, 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 or removing this whole conversation is about history, and I think it's important to, to know and understand. You know, I, I, I'm way more, I don't know if it's frustrated is the right word, but I'm, I'm way more opinionated on a Robert E. Lee than I'm on a Thomas Jefferson and the contribution and the meaningness and, and what they stood for. Yes, Jefferson had slaves. Yes, that was bad. But when I think of Jefferson, that's not what I think about. I think about the contribution. I think about the benefit. Also, again, I'm a, I'm a lover of history. And so, you know, it's, it's hard not to think about those things. You know, when you, when you think about Confederacy, I don't think about the contribution. I think of the individuals I see waving the Confederate flags are, aren't individuals to me that are actually waving it in front of my face, telling me I'm welcome to be here. I think it's just the opposite. Um, and I think in that regard, if, if that's what we're trying to maintain, I think we, again, go back to the conversation, but we're also allowing ourselves to either be stuck in a place or go back to a place where we're telling a race of people who, mind you, didn't ask to be here to begin with. We're forced to be here. We're, we're basically saying you're no longer are welcome here anymore. And, and if we're going to be removing races of people, we have to go back to those who actually were here first and let them have their land back. Well, that's going to be a tough one. <laughs> Liz, you have another question? Yeah, Bill? What would Jefferson think of the phrase America first? And Ooh. would he see it as a theme that might bring about national unity if it weren't associated with Donald Trump? 
That's a great question. I think it's true. Jefferson is the father of American exceptionalism. He said, thank goodness there's a 3,000-mile moat between us and the old world. He said, would it were an ocean of fire? And he believed the United States was going to be something new under the sun, that we were going to be the most extraordinary civilization that the world had ever seen. In many respects, we are. He wanted us to distance ourselves from Europe. He said, we have no business in entering into the quarrels of Europe. He coined the phrase, avoid entangling alliances, not Washington, Jefferson. He was an America firster, but he also knew seven languages. And he, he spoke French, Italian, Spanish, and English, Greek, Latin, and Anglo-Saxon. He was at home. He was a citizen of the world. He loved French culture. He said every man's first country, of course, is his own, but every rational man's second country is France. And then he started a revolution over there. And so, you know, Jefferson was a world citizen, and he, and he belonged to something called the Republic of Letters, like-minded individuals who exchanged correspondence and scientific discoveries. Jefferson was a cosmopolitan, and he realized that America must live in the world, and that we were peopled from the rest of the world. Aside from Native Americans, everyone came either involuntarily or voluntarily on a ship. And so he had some understanding. I think that the, the nativism that we're seeing now, the America firstism, is first of all an impossible challenge. We can't turn away from the world. If you look at the history of the 20th century, the United States tried twice to stay out of major world wars, inevitably was drawn in, saved the world maybe in the second world war with our industrial capacity and our wealth. We now live in a global system where the Toyota that you drive is partly made in Sri Lanka and partly made in Africa and partly made in Tennessee. It's too late to be America first. And when Donald Trump, and I don't mean to beat up on him, but when he attacked the Germans for their automobile industry and then had to admit that a lot of those cars are built in the United States, it's just so much more complicated than ever. That's the problem. We are settling for simplistic narratives. And, that, and it's not just Trump and the right. It's Pelosi and the left. We're settling for simplistic narratives about an extremely rich and complex world. And so I think if Jefferson were here, he would say this. I think he would agree with Trump in this respect. The first business of a president is to protect the lives, the fortunes, and the happiness of his own citizens. And I think it can honestly be said that some of our policies in the last 30 or 40 years have been so generous to trading partners that they have not adequately protected the United States in some respects. I think the thing about Donald Trump is that he's onto something. You know, he's like that crazy uncle at Thanksgiving, but he's onto something. He's onto real issues in American life. We just need to take it up into the adult chamber now. And I'm serious and really discuss these things. Are we being are we being exploited by our trading partners? Why are we why do we still have troops in Okinawa? Why do why does Canada not have a defense department of our stature? Why we police the world's of sea lanes. Is that fair? We pass environmental legislation here that's routinely undermined by activities in China. Is that is that acceptable to American industry? Labor practices that would be unacceptable in the United States, that would be shut down immediately by OSHA or any other national agency, are routine in China and other Asian countries. So I think it's fair to address those questions. Those are serious questions about what it's like to be the hegemon and the world's most important and economically powerful country in a world that takes advantage of that in certain ways. But that has to be a mature, thoughtful, evidence-based conversation. 
and a nuanced one. And, and if we don't insist upon that, there are plenty of people who want to make it simplistic, and they're, in a sense, getting away with it. And I think we have to challenge that. I want to say one thing about these statues. One more thing, though. I remember, some of you remember, when Maplethorpe had his photograph of the crucifix of Christ in a glass of urine. Remember this? And the liberals said, oh no, this is art. This is protected. You you people who object to that are morons. You're Philistines. You're beneath contempt. This goes both ways. Right. There's a reason why the heartland of the country is pissed off. They have been really mistreated. In this country, we have a sense that there's an enlightenment and then there's the other. And the Enlightenment is Martha's Vineyard and Harvard and Princeton and the National Endowments and the other... What? And Florida State. I wasn't going to say that, but... uh, (laughs) I saw your stadium. Your stadium makes like the Roman Coliseum look like a Sunday school room. That is quite a stadium. I want to go to one of those games. I've been watching that... There's plenty of tickets. There's plenty of tickets. (laughs) I don't think there are. And seats. but, But... but you have to admit that there's that there's a there's a there's a there's a intellectual and cultural class system in this country, and the people who are in the establishment class are nothing but sneery and snotty to everyone else, and that has empowered this revolution. And until they get over that arrogance and realize there's room in this country for someone who doesn't want Jesus to be in a glass of urine and doesn't want to spend his or her tax money on that. We can't recover. We have to admit that there is that there are different legitimate cultural points of view, and we don't. So, and Clay, tagging on to that, uh, a couple of related questions. What is your view of the current trend in college administrators to filter what students can read and discuss, i.e., what do you think of, of safe zones and trigger warnings, and maybe what Jefferson would, and then would Jefferson have allowed Richard Spencer to speak and be heard? Wow. Um, well, first of all, about trigger warnings. My daughter went to Columbia, and so and she had a great education at Columbia. She did. She studied classics. She got a degree in Greek and Latin, and is now living in my basement. And so, uh, uh, so and, uh, but she has her own smartphone, and I don't even know. I don't even know what's going on down there. Uh, but she got a full-on degree in classics, and then went off to St. Andrews and got an MLit in, in Elizabethan history. And I'm immensely proud of her. She's now officially unemployable. So um, how cool can that be? A, a pure education in the liberal arts. The trigger warnings and the safe zones really offend me because literature is only literature if it's about the struggle of being human. And so there are going to be wars. There's going to be molestation and rape. There's going to be Domestic violence in literature, the Iliad would have to go, the Inferno has to go. I mean, these trigger warnings where the professor, I don't know if you all know this, the professor will say, now today we're going to be reading Yeats's poem, Leda and the Swan. It's about Greek mythology, but, but Zeus, in a sense, rapes the swan. If this is going to be offensive to you, we don't have to read it or you can leave. You, there wouldn't be much literature left. If this were really, we need a robust conversation. Uh, we need a robust literature and we have to be, I think we have to be very cautious about all of this. And I do think that, that the professoriate, I don't know if it's true here at Florida State, but it's true at the liberal elitist 
universities and colleges, the professoriate is so far to the left now and so snotty about it that they have driven people away from the humanities with theory and postmodernism and so on. I could give you a lot of examples of this, and this is damaging the future of the humanities and the liberal arts. So I do think that this is a a very significant problem. The second question was about would Jefferson would Jefferson uh, oh, like about the, I've allowed uh, Richard Spencer, Spencer yeah. to speak and yes, be heard. Yes, I, the the motto of the Enlightenment, the now beleaguered Enlightenment, was what Voltaire is said to have said. Madam, I disagree with what you say, but I shall defend to the death your right to say it. And this was actually Theodore Roosevelt's best moment, or one of them. Uh, there was an anti-Semite who wanted to speak in New York City, and everybody advised Roosevelt to forbid it when he was the police commissioner of New York. He said, no, let him speak. It's That's the nature of it. We need a robust dialogue. But he had all of the policemen who were guarding that speech be Jewish officers. And so this anti-Semite had to stand up in front of 30 or 40 Jewish policemen wow. and give his speech, and it had an intimidating effect on him. And he, and he realized, in addition, these are good cops. And so that's the answer to this, I think, is more speech, robust speech, tolerance, we're getting a we're getting to be pretty sensitive plants here if everything offends us and I mean until we get well, over the culture uh, of outrage. Can I, can I push back just a nudge? Sure. Richard Spencer isn't just spouting offensive speech. He's inspiring violence against immigrants. He's inspiring violence against Jewish people. He's inspiring violence against black people. So while I agree with your sentiment, and I think the way it turned out frankly, was great. The students came there, they peacefully protested, and they shouted him down. His right to be an asshole, according to the Dutch, is, wow. is equally matched by the students' uh, right to shout him down. But this isn't just... And so it, I think he brings us to the edge of that. He's preaching violence. And he's preaching deep... And it's one thing to preach hatred, but it's, not a, it's, not, it's a little different to preach violence. Well, just give you Jefferson's take on it. Jefferson would say, you may say anything you please, but when it breaks out into antisocial action, we will arrest you. So I could say everyone in this room should go out and kill a cop. As long as that doesn't happen, that's just nonsense that came out of my mouth. But if one of you goes out and kills a cop, now we have a very serious problem on our hands. And so... It's a, as you know, it's a hard line to draw. Who's the, who's the U.S. Army guy who's being sentenced right now? Bergdahl? I just was listening to this on the way over, and the president of the United States during the campaign said we should shoot him with a rifle, and he said we should take him up in an airplane and drop him from that airplane. Should he be arrested for that? He's inciting violence. I, 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 I don't, but, I don't, but I'm him. not letting him speak on my campus if I'm the president. You would not. I, I, I would let the president, of course. No, I, and I'm not saying no. I'm just saying Richard Spencer, it's a great question because he pushes the limit. Mm-hmm. But that's the whole nature of it. I mean, Jefferson's view was it's the First Amendment doesn't mean anything if it's about quilting. If we're talking about whether we should have a rally here or a rally there, the First Amendment doesn't mean anything until we're talking about incendiary speech, seditious speech, offensive speech, obscene speech. That's when you need a First Amendment. Is but wasn't protect- the First Amendment written with a with very clear idea of speaking out against the government, uh, which is what my John Adams went so, went so bad, is that, that speech should always be protected. I'm not sure he meant to say speech to encourage, hey, when Clay Lee's here. And by the way, speaking of speech, Tom Flanagan, are you still here from WFSU? 
Let's not take that comment out of context. <laughs> Which one? The cop killing? Well, WFSU, Tom Flanagan was here oh. when you said it. Like, yeah, it's like, I'm not, my, you know, I asked my father when I went off to Oxford, what's your advice to me? And he wouldn't, he was the kind of father who would never give advice. And I said, no, no, you know, I'm going to be gone for several years. What's your advice? He said, never kill a cop. There you go. That's good parenting. <laughs> he said, if you kill a cop, you're going to be known as a cop killer. And all the cops on the beat are going to be after you. You know, that's the only piece of advice I've ever taken. <laughs> like many teenagers going really on Really good college. advice. Exactly you know? right. Hi again. It's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed Dead Presidents and Living Statues with Steve, Clay, and Derek. Rebroadcast here on Village Squarecast in partnership with Florida Humanities. Let's hear it for these guys who know how to keep us entertained while also exploring very serious topics at the same time. And here's what I think is really interesting. The last time that we discussed statues on this podcast, which by the way was episode 34, Rethinking Conflict with Dr. Gary Mason, who was instrumental in the peace process of Northern Ireland. And so he has such incredible advice for us based on what his homeland of Northern Ireland went through for many, many years. So anyway, in episode 34, we also talked about statues. And I find it very interesting that Clay Jenkinson and Dr. Gary Mason both said the same thing. They said that we need to have serious, complex, and meaningful conversations on race in this country, broadly, and with diverse people as we try to sort this out. And the question that's always in my head when I hear something like that is, how? You know, great idea, but how are we supposed to do that exactly? Well, it only took me a second to realize, wait a minute, that's exactly what we do here at the Village Square. Our local color series and our Equality in Life and Created Equal programs were created to do exactly that. And also, so many of our guests across our programs are picked because of the conversations they facilitate all over our country. There's David and Aaron Leverton from the reunited States, episode 26, who traveled to all 50 states in an RV to connect in person with the diverse people of our country. Then there's former U.S. representatives Patrick Murphy and David Jolly from A Divided Union, episode 28 and former U.S. Congressman Jason Altmaier from episode 32, Forget Washington, Save America, who are all working to create an alternative to the nasty partisan politics and us-versus-them behavior. Instead, Murphy, Jolly, and Altmaier are working in the opposite way, where they welcome and appreciate diverse viewpoints so we can work together towards solutions that benefit the common good. And we also have guests like Dr. Jonathan Haidt from The Righteous Mind, Episode 10. And coming up soon, our first fall program will be with Amanda Ripley, who will share insights on her new book, High Conflict. Both Jonathan and Amanda help us see the other as human, and they help us understand opposing viewpoints and motivate us to come together with people who are different than us so we can figure out how to move forward together. And, you know, the list really goes on and on and on. Just check out our podcast feed for a lot more examples. So, you know, what's really cool? What do you and me and all of these people have in common? 
the Village Square. We're all here, learning and engaging, and ready to move America forward together. So back to that important question of how, and even further, what can you do to promote these conversations in America? How about bring more people into the Village Square? I bet you know someone who could really benefit from these programs. And if a face just popped into your mind, why don't you help us make pigs fly by sharing these programs with that person? Text them a link, give them a call, invite them to coffee, whatever feels right. Just please, let's bring more people into these conversations. So on that note, before we sign off, we'd like to give a huge thank you to one of our longtime partners and somebody we discuss these issues with on a regular basis, Florida Humanities. Thank you for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free. Subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll see the fantastic lineup of programs that we have planned for you throughout the rest of this calendar year. And that's also where you can find that bonus behind the scenes episode coming up soon with Clay Jenkinson. To stay up to date with all that's happening at the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to Dead Presidents and Living Statues. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.